Well, I asked Brian Croft a few weeks ago how in the world to preach a final sermon. And he said that preaching a final sermon is a great opportunity to leave the congregation with that which is most important to you. The thing by which they will remember your ministry to them. And so that simplified the process quite a bit because instantly I knew what I wanted to preach to you. If any of you were around all the way back during my very first sermon series, then you might guess what I want to preach to you today. Anybody want to render a guess what was the name of that first sermon series? I'll give you something special. I don't know what it is, but I'll give you something. You can guess. Rest and Roots? No, that was the second sermon series. Tammy Staten, you're not allowed to guess because you created the sermon art for it. It was called Jesus First. And it walked through the seven I am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Now, why did I choose that sermon series? Well, because at a time when everyone was asking, who is this new guy and where is he going to lead us? I wanted it to be absolutely clear. In all things, I am ultimately going to lead you to Jesus first. Over and over and over. So if today's sermon was part of a final series, I think I would title it, Jesus Last. First and last. Because I want to end with that which I have preached from the beginning, and hopefully that which has characterized every sermon all the way up till now. Not just missions, not just relationships, not just doctrine, but that which makes them all possible. Jesus Christ himself. I want to do that from one of my favorite passages in the Bible and one of my favorite persons in the Bible, which together have shaped much of how I approach life and ministry. In fact, my Ethiopian-given name, Johannes, was given to me because they said, you are like this person, always pointing people to Jesus. I'm speaking of John the Baptist in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 22 to 30. So I invite you to open your Bibles there with me. And while you're doing that, I want to give you my main and parting application of the sermon as we observe John's complete joy in this passage. It is this. Make much of Jesus and your joy will be complete. And with that said, please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word. If you're not able to stand, please stand with us in your hearts. Again, today's passage is John chapter 3 verses 22 to 30. Church, hear the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. 
Church, the Lord has spoken to us. Let's say this together. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So 12 years ago, I almost ruined my best friend's wedding. He and I had been college roommates, and then both of us went off to serve as missionaries in different parts of the world. And during that time, both of us had fallen in love with these girls that we went to college with who were still finishing their studies back home. So that means we both experienced the challenges, the pain, the anguish of long-distance relationships. Well, when he and I finished our terms and came home to get married, he asked me to do his wedding, the first one I had ever officiated. Now, there were lots of things that I did wrong. For example, I decided to be extemporaneous for the homily. And y'all know that I can't put two sentences together without writing them down. So that didn't go well. Also, I left my microphone turned on during the singing portion of the wedding which recorded my singing on their wedding video. (laughs) You're welcome for that. I'm sure they're going to enjoy that through the years. And then finally, when I asked for the rings, I decided I would just lay them on top of my Bible symbolically and beautifully, not realizing that they could very easily fall off, which one of them did and almost rolled into a vent that would have taken it under the stage. But that's not the worst part. I know. (laughs) The worst thing happened at the beginning when the bride walked down the aisle. I always get a little emotional at a wedding when the doors open and everyone sees the bride. It just makes me think of the day that Jesus will be united to his bride, the church, once and for all. But this day was a whole other level of emotionalness. First of all, it happened at the climactic moment of this deeply moving song by Christy Knuckles called Carry Your Name. But more than that, I, in the moment, knew how much pain and longing my friend had gone through in order to get to that moment. And to my horror, I felt myself starting to cry. Now, why is that bad? Because where does everyone look when the bride comes in? Stand up, turn, look to the bride. Then where does everyone look after that? At the groom to see what is happening on his face and bonus points if he's crying. So what do you think people were going to think if they instead saw me crying like a baby? (laughs) One of two things, it would either steal the show or they would think I was not very happy about this marriage. (laughs) So instead, I did that thing where you try to choke back sobs. Anybody ever tried that? which for me sounded something like (coughs) microphone on. So bad. (laughs) But here's what was good about it. The reason why I responded that way was because I loved my friend so much and I was so, so happy to see him receive his bride. I'm a happy crier, okay? And that moment for me was complete joy. I tell this story because it's a dang good story, and I like telling y'all good stories. But more than that, because it helps us to enter into the spirit of today's passage. As John the Baptist draws near to the end of his ministry, and soon his life, 
we interestingly see him speaking about, of all things, a wedding and a groom and a bride and a best man. But before we get to that, let's first back up and consider who John the Baptist is. And you might ask, what does this have to do at all with the season of Advent? And also, what does John the Baptist have to do with complete joy? Wasn't he like a turn or burn preacher? Well, in fact, I think you could argue that no one plays a bigger role in the inauguration of the Christmas story than John the Baptist. And that the very first of his characteristics to which we are introduced is, surprisingly, joy. In early pregnancy, when Mary, the mother of Jesus, goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, John's mother, Elizabeth says to her, For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. That's the imagery I get of this baby just starfishing inside of her womb. Now I asked Katie, how is it that you can tell between a baby leaping for joy and a baby just moving? And she said that it was likely such a big movement that Elizabeth felt it not just in her gut physically, but in her chest spiritually. It's clear then that John's response to Jesus from the very beginning was complete joy. How could that be? Like, he's a baby in utero. Well, because we were told earlier in Luke's gospel that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. You see, when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, my friends, your response anytime that Jesus arrives on the scene is always the same. Joy. And John was this way because he had been sent as the final and greatest of the Old Testament prophets. He had been prophesied 400 years earlier in the book of Malachi as the messenger who would prepare the way for the Messiah. About him, Jesus himself would later give this astounding statement. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Can you imagine Jesus saying something like that about you? Wow! And yet the greatness of which Jesus spoke wasn't just the expanse of John's influence, but it was the posture in which he played his role in redemption history. John humbly and relentlessly made much of Jesus instead of himself. And for this reason, he has often been depicted in religious art this way. I came across this depiction um, and a description of it by an author who says, With both hands, John is motioning to his right. He is gently directing our attention to someone other than himself. His head is deferentially tilted in the same direction. His eyes, however, are cast down. It is as if humility will not allow him to make eye contact with the one to whom he is pointing. Now, this I came across uh, a few years ago when the Kiefer family gave me a book titled The Sacred Wilderness of Pastoral Ministry. In it, Pastor David Rohr surprisingly uses John the Baptist as a model for pastoral ministry. Two themes from the book that resonated with me and were formational in my ministry at Antioch. First, that at the heart of pastoral ministry, the care that Brian spoke about last week, is not building an organization, but preparing a people for the presence of the Lord to meet Jesus face to face. And second, that the calling of a pastor is not to commandeer a church's story and make it his own, but instead to only steward it for a season. To remember that that story began before the pastor and that it will continue on past 
the pastor. Such was the character of John the Baptist. Character that is in no place better encapsulated than in today's passage. We read beginning in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Edon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. In order to understand what otherwise might seem to be kind of like a random story in the flow of John's gospel, theologian D.A. Carson says that this is the fourth successive section to point out ways in which Jesus fulfills and surpasses Old Testament Judaism. That's what this argument in verse 25 is about. It's likely that John's disciples are saying that John's baptism is the best way to be close to God. And then this other person is saying that another form of Jewish baptism is best. Now I'm glad that we have gotten past this today. That since Jesus has come, modern religious people don't argue over different modes of baptism. That Christians don't make groupings of themselves almost exclusively on baptism preferences. I'm joking, of course. Um, We all know how strongly debates can arise over sprinkling or immersion or infant or believer's baptism. And while those things do matter, when they are made primary, then we have become man-focused instead of God-focused. Which explains why John's disciples do this in verse 26. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing And everybody's going over to him. Now this is probably not, Rabbi, we're so excited to see people going to Jesus just like you told them. Isn't that great? High five. No. Instead it's more like, Rabbi, what are we going to do? Jesus is starting to get all the attention. I think it's fair here to read some jealousy and resentment in their words. John is their star. They want to see him shine. In this moment they're being... Man-focused instead of God-focused. In the story, The Lord of the Rings, and yes, yet another shameless reference to The Lord of the Rings, but it's the last one, so enjoy it. There we go. Or tolerate it, either way, wherever you're at. Much of the plot revolves around the inability of anyone in all of Middle-earth to resist the evil power of the One Ring. To hold it or even to see it is to be taken by the maddening obsession to possess it. Even Frodo, the seemingly purest of heart among all creatures, in the end, cannot resist taking it for himself. Mine is the insatiable cry of the ring's victims. Just as it has been in the mouths of all men and women since the day Adam and Eve sought to possess God's glory for themselves. This life is mine. This body is is mine. This time is mine. This money is mine. This success is mine. And such we would expect John to say along with all the rest of fallen humanity when put to the test. I don't think we can even begin to fathom the level of temptation in this moment. The test of character for John to surrender his claim on the story of God's people. What will he do? How will he respond? Four brief and remarkable observations. First, John recognized he had nothing without Jesus. 
Listen to the very first words out of his mouth in verse 27. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. His disciples are focused on the things of earth, but where does John immediately redirect them? The things of heaven. To consider the things of heaven is to embrace the feeling of being really, really small. So small, in fact, that we can have nothing unless our heavenly Father gives it to us. Even the breath in our lungs. There's literally nothing we can possess and say, Mine! And Paul reiterates this to the Corinthian church when he asks the questions, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So to answer these questions honestly means to cultivate this spirit-filled quality. Humility. John was humble enough to see that his great ministry and success had been given not earned. Therefore, he didn't have to react defensively when it seemed threatened or diminished. There was no turf to protect because it already belonged to Jesus. Now, over the past month of sitting in the grief of this transition, I have sensed the question, sometimes spoken, sometimes unspoken, how could you so easily sever your role and your relationships with us? Did we not matter that much to you? And my response is that this process wasn't a matter of carelessly withdrawing, but of the Lord cultivating deeper humility in my heart to lay down a ministry that didn't ever belong to me in the first place. That which in my flesh I would seek to possess for myself. I have at times not been like John in these years. But in the end, I hope to be so. Secondly, this morning, we see that John was satisfied with his place in regard to Jesus. He continues his response in verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. So here John is reminding them of something. He's like, You guys already know what I'm going to say because I've been saying it the whole time. And then he gives a true assessment of himself, which, by the way, that's what humility is. It's not more than you are. It's not less than what you are. It's a true assessment of who you are. He says, I am not the Christ. What a powerful, humanly impossible statement to make. Paul again draws this out later to the Corinthians when he says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Of course, we know later that John, while in prison, will momentarily waver on this when he asks Jesus, Are you the Christ or should we look for another? John certainly wasn't a perfect man. He was capable of misunderstanding the scriptures and having doubts when in desperate circumstances. But you have to give him this. He knew his role. He knew his role. Which speaks to another spirit-filled quality, contentment. John was content to play a subservient and soon-to-be unnecessary role to Jesus. He's the supporting actor that makes the lead role shine. He's the lead blocker that opens up the hole for the running back. And he's totally okay with being nothing more. Over the past three months, the Lord knows my sleepless nights 
of wrestling with mistakes that I made over the past six and a half years. But what is left to me now is not to live with the regrets of the past or the weight of the future of this church, but to be content with the role that I was given to play in my time. And what freedom. I am not the Christ. Jesus is Lord. A third observation that we can make from today's passage is that John found his greatest joy and glory being given to Jesus. Here we arrive at what I think is the loveliest part of this passage, verse 29. John says, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Now, I know this language might seem kind of random, which is probably why this verse in the famous chapter of John 3 is so easily overlooked. But what John is pulling from here is an Old Testament metaphor that describes God as the bridegroom and the people of Israel as his bride. And so in this scenario, then, John's disciples have effectively said to John, look, Jesus is stealing away your bride. But John's like, no, wait a minute. I'm not the groom. And as he proceeds to use Jewish marriage customs, he describes his place in this metaphorical wedding. Now, we're all familiar with the role of the best man at a wedding. But in Jewish culture, it involved a lot more than just holding the ring and making an awkward speech. The best man, or the friend of the bridegroom, as John puts it, was actually responsible for many parts of the wedding. And this included... And I'm going to quote here from a scholar so you don't think I'm just making this up. Leading the bridegroom to his bride and waiting outside the bridal chamber while the marriage was consummated. That's a responsibility, okay? Thus the reference to the bridegroom's voice refers to the shout of exultation by the bridegroom when he discovers he has married a virgin. Okay? The work of the friend of the bridegroom then is then complete and he takes pleasure in the bridegroom's joy. So what John is getting at with the use of this metaphor is this. He, the friend of the bridegroom, has led the bride to her groom. He has prepared a people for the presence of the Lord. And that he, as he watches people from Israel go to Jesus... He's seeing them go face to face with the one who they were made for. In other words, he's saying, Jesus is God. But it's more than just a doctrinal confession, isn't it? Look at the spirit-filled quality that is pouring out of John here. Joy. And not just any joy, but a complete joy. That is a hard-wrought, longed-for joy that is now fulfilled. Seeing Jesus glorified is John's ultimate satisfaction, even in the grief of loss that he must feel in this moment. And that joy is mine today, even as I surrender my place in this community. To see things like Aaron Kiefer go from weariness to worship pastor. To see someone like Tanner Williams go from something to prove to nothing to prove. To see Josiah Wallace go from despair to pillar of the church. To see Sarah Tennant find a place for her giftedness in soul care. 
to see Steve Leach stand in the gap so that the gospel can go to Cubans. To see people like Brenda Lindsay and Noah Teal find their savior. To see Chaturman Rai become the anchor for Asa Church. To see senior saints like Suzanne, Dave, and Miss Louise set the example of following Jesus to the very end. To see women built up and affirmed to lead alongside men. To see the wounded and wandering find a home. To see people writing their own songs and liturgies to build up the church. To see young moms and dads raise up young disciples. To see refugees experience welcome. To see a remnant come out of 2020 with their eyes still on Jesus. To see people fulfill their dreams of being sent to the nations. To see the senders left behind endure the loss and hold the rope. To see a congregation become more than a church plant. To see a culture fostered that holds mission and formation in tension at the same time. I am watching people go to the one that they were made for. And that I somehow had a role to play in that is a complete joy. Even as I grieve this loss. And finally today here in this passage we see that John embraced God's plan and the supremacy that it gave to Jesus. He will only speak seven more words, but y'all they are words for the ages. In verse 30, John says famously, He must increase, but I must decrease. I want to draw your attention to the word must here. What John is communicating is divine necessity. Jesus must take precedence over him. Become everything, even as John becomes nothing. But as one theologian says, this is not John grudgingly conceding victory to a superior opponent but wholeheartedly embracing God's plan and the supremacy that it assigns to Jesus. The spirit-filled quality that we see here is this, submission. Submission to God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. The idea here takes me to the famous words of a Moravian missionary. He says, preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. Not that I want to die, nor even be forgotten, but in my submission to God's will to transition from this role, even as I decrease, I want to do so knowing that I faithfully preached the gospel and made Jesus supreme in all things. Now, what does that have to do with you all? Or has this just been one last rambling self-reflection? Here's the relevance. For every single one of you, there will come moments in your life where it's time for you to lay something down, often sooner than you expect or are quite ready for. A parent will pass away. Someday a spouse. A child will grow up and head out into the world. A friend will move away. A job will come to an end. A ministry in which you've served or led will conclude. A season in a local church body will finish. And ultimately for all of us, our bodies will fail and our lives will be surrendered to the one who gave them. 
Don't you want to arrive at those moments with the spirit-filled qualities of humility, contentment, joy, and submission? Because despite the mistakes and regrets, you have sought to make much of Jesus in that time, in that relationship, in that opportunity. In fact, this is what Jesus himself wants for you, which explains his comment in John 15, 11. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Same Greek word that means complete. Brothers and sisters, let me testify to you today that nothing compares to the complete joy of having been the friend of the bridegroom. Knowing that you played your role and that he is proud of you, that his joy is complete over you. I would urge you to receive this final application before I go. In the things that you've already been given that don't ultimately belong to you, compared to all the lesser pursuits that will leave you with incomplete joy, instead, make much of Jesus. And I assure you, one day, when he shows up on the scene and you meet him face to face, your joy will be complete. And that's possible and only possible because Jesus first did it in your place. Tell me who more than anyone else embodied humility when he lived in complete dependence as though he had nothing without God. Tell me who more than anyone else displayed contentment when he accepted his sacrificial place in the story of God. Tell me who more than anyone else exuded joy in glory being given to God, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, the Bible tells us. And tell me who more than anyone else exemplified submission when he embraced the supremacy of God's plan, even though it meant he would die be forgotten and rise again in order for the gospel to be preached. See, the early church would continue to build on John's Old Testament metaphor, saying that Jesus is the bridegroom and all who go to him for salvation are the bride. All the way up to some of the last words of the Bible, Revelation twenty-two seventeen: the spirit and the bride say what? Come, Lord Jesus. But in a way that twists my brain a little, Jesus is kind of not only the bridegroom, but also the best man. Listen to these words in 1 Corinthians 15. When all things are finally subjected to Jesus, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. There's a lot going on trinitarianly in that verse that confuses me a little bit, makes it hard to explain. But in the end, it kind of seems like Jesus delivers the spotless bride up to his father finally and forever. Amazingly, he doesn't commandeer the story, but he offers it all to the praise of the triune God. What I'm getting at is this. You don't have to be some extraordinary person to play your part in God's story. 
You just need to trust that Jesus was that extraordinary person. And that he will fill you with his spirit. So that you may experience in you and through you his complete joy. The night that Jesus was betrayed. For the joy that was set before him, he broke bread after blessing it. So this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took a cup of wine, and after blessing it, he gave it to his disciples. He said, this marks the new covenant in the shedding of my blood. As often as you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he returns. Today, church, let's announce this together. He must increase, but I must decrease. Our tradition here at Antioch, if you're a baptized believer, whether or not you're a member of this church, is to come forward, remembering what Christ has done for you, and in doing so, proclaiming that he will come again, breaking off a piece of bread, dipping it in the juice, taking it. There'll be gluten-free available over on this side. If you're here today and you're not a baptized believer, this sacred meal is not for you. For you is some far better. And that is you can know God. You can be ushered to the one you were made for by putting your faith not in yourself to be an extraordinary person, but in Jesus Christ, who was the most extraordinary person, God in the flesh, who died for you, rose again for you, and loves you, and wants to share with you the joy that he feels over his finished work. There'll be people in the back to pray with you for any need that you have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We continue in the words of John 3, confessing that he who comes from above is above all. Jesus, you came, and you are above all. We bear witness to this, that who you are and what you've done is more than enough for us to be saved now and forever. We put our trust in you. Just as you, Father, love your Son, we can be loved just the same. And so in this moment, I pray that we would experience together as a family your love, your complete joy over us to welcome us at your table. And may we look forward to the day where you take us by the hand, individually and collectively, and you usher us into the presence of God face to face forever. And for those who are here today and have not yet experienced your salvation, may this be a moment in which they say, I am going to say yes to what's pulling at my heart. Lord, be glorified in this moment. Be glorified in Antioch Church. I entrust it to you. It's always been yours. May you bless the pastors as they shepherd. May you bless the flock as they walk into the glorious days ahead. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.